situation where this man, John, is going to ask us to do something that, quite honestly, we can't do. That's the mystery behind it. Don't you hate it when people ask you to do something you can't possibly do? That's John the Baptist for us, but let's go back. John, what do we know about John? He is a man of mystery. He had a mysterious birth. Do you know his parents? Who are his parents? Zechariah and Elizabeth. Do you have little Zechariahs and Elizabeths in your, uh, in your Christmas decorations? You should. You shouldn't have wise men. They don't come for two years later after the birth of Christ. But you should have Zechariahs and Elizabeths and Simeons and Annas. Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, six months before Jesus was born, John the Baptist was born. And John the Baptist is part of Jesus' extended family. It's not, it's not crazy to think that Jesus and John knew each other growing up, went to big festival gatherings together because they traveled in packs, these extended families. Mary and Elizabeth certainly knew each other well. John was born to old Elizabeth and old Zechariah, as one commentary says, long after menopause had set in. Uh, Elizabeth became pregnant. Um, And there's this story in Luke chapter 1 where John the Baptist first meets Jesus. Do you know what happens? You know the story? Luke chapter 1, verse 39. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. This man of mystery, John the Baptist, mysterious baby, leaping because he knew that there was, oh, there's another womb in here that I really want to have something to do with. It's Mary's womb. And the baby leapt. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is, it, why is this granted to me, that the mother, Mary, of my Lord, Jesus in the womb, should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So this mysterious, very crazy birth account. Then we don't hear anything about John until he emerges out of the wilderness in the hill country. And he's odd. He has an odd wardrobe and he has an odd diet. His, his wardrobe, camel skin, and he had a rope tied around it. Um, um, and his diet was... Well, it said John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So the locusts for protein and the wild honey because he had a sweet tooth. But it was a grain-free diet that he uh, entered into. But that's, that was his living, and so his breath was odd, and his, his whole, it, it, just to encounter John would be an extraordinary thing. Uh, And so questions began swirling around this guy, John, from the very beginning. Who is this guy? And he grew in popularity. He would preach out in the wilderness. Imagine somebody who just preached like out in, I don't know, up the 17 and off to the side a little bit. And people just started going up out of Phoenix to go hear this guy talk. And they said, could he be the Christ? People didn't know who he was. They were all asking, maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is the guy who's come to not only redeem us, but redeem us from Roman occupation because they were looking for a Messiah at that time. John and Jesus, in many ways, were similar. 
I'm sure people used John and Jesus in the same sentence a lot during that day because John was a phenomenon and then Jesus became a phenomenon. A lot of people who went to hear John also went to hear Jesus. So these were the two headliners of the day for the spiritual community. Now there's some really interesting similarities between the two. They both came, again, from the same extended family. They both had incredibly inspirational birth accounts one from a really old, and then one from a really young, which is very interesting when you think about it. John was birthed out of the old, and Jesus was birthed miraculously even before the new. So there's, there's this, within the same family, there's this passing, covenantal passing taking place in these births. Uh, both of them, Jesus and John, are wildly popular. In fact, uh, it, Mark chapter 1, verse 5 says, all the country of Judah and Jerusalem were coming out to see John the Baptist. And we know later that multitudes were following Jesus as well. So they were both crazy popular, uh, enthusiastic supporters. Then they also became wildly unpopular with some people. So you know this about John the Baptist, the story about him. Uh, first of all, John, John had the tendency to say it like it is. Like, what, what should I do, says a tax collector? Well, quit cheating people. <laughs> you insinuating that I cheat people? Yeah, you're a cheater. Stop it. No one likes being told about their sin. So John did this, and John became very unpopular specifically with Herod and Herod's wife Herodias. If you know the story or not, but Herod's wife Herodias was Herod's brother's wife first. But Herod really dug her and took her And John the Baptist said, we don't know what kind of tone of voice John used, but he said this, that's sin. Well, Herodias didn't like anybody telling her that that's sin. Have you ever been in that situation where someone in your life is doing something that's clearly sin, and all you're saying is, well, that's what the Bible says, so that's sin. And they get all defensive, push back. That's Herod and Herodias. They didn't like John the Baptist. They imprisoned him. And that story of Herodias' daughter one night was doing a little dance at the dinner party, And Herod said, I'll give you whatever you want. So Herodias said, here's what you want. You want John the Baptist's head on a platter. So Herodias' daughter came up and said, well, I I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. He goes, did your mother tell you to say that? And John got executed. Why did John get executed? For speaking the truth. It's reality in our fallen world. And Jesus is going to experience the same reality, of course. Ultimately, Did Jesus ever say anything that wasn't filled with compassion and mercy? Didn't Jesus come to proclaim the truth of a God who loves his world so much that he's giving his only begotten son? And what happens? You get crucified for that kind of stuff. Because Jesus also said, this is sin and this is forgiveness. But the this is sin part was just too hard for people to take. Especially when you're a Pharisee and you don't think you sin anymore. Gave that up a long time ago. So both Jesus and John, incredibly popular but in the end, fall to their unpopularity. And both of them insist on something. Well, actually, two things. The kingdom of God is among you. They both said the same exact things. Matthew 3, 2 has John saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, verse 7, a, a chapter later, has Jesus saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same kingdom reality proclamation but also this call to do what? Repent. 
Repent of your sin. And here's where we get to the mystery of it. John the Baptist is calling people to repent. Jesus is calling people to repent. But there is a huge difference between these two messages. And your, where your soul ends up in connection to this difference has everything to do with whether or not you're in a healthy relationship with your God or not. Because John the Baptist is calling people to do something that they cannot do. But Jesus is going to call them to a repentance that's actually possible. It's the difference between our best and God's best. If you're lined up with the best you can do, you're in trouble. If you're lined up with the best God has done, you're saved. And that's the fulcrum on which we have this old birth John the Baptist proclaiming the law and this new birth Jesus proclaiming gospel, good news of the salvation of God. So let's take a look at these differences here. John challenges people with the truth. So we just heard in that, that scripture reading, no matter who came up to him and said, what must I do? I'm going to challenge you. I'm just going to point my finger at your sin and call you to righteous obedience. John came to challenge us. John came to say, if you're going if, if to meet God face to face, you'd better get prepared, and that preparation involves repenting of your sin. You'd better get ready. Jesus did not come to simply call us to repent, Jesus came to save us, which is a big difference. We'll clarify that. Because John came to proclaim the law. Okay, now I'm going to be all good Lutheran. Any good Lutherans in here tonight? This is, a, this is a hallmark of classical Lutheran theology, which, by the way, makes it a hallmark of classical Christian theology for hundreds of years prior to Luther. But it's this demarcation between the law in the, in the scriptures and the gospel. Our Bible is full of stuff that says thou shalt or thou shalt not. It's God telling us how to live. And that's good to know because God made us. So God makes us and we are volitional. We have a will. And so we pray things like thy, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want, I want my life to reflect your decisions and your will. And we get that in the laws of the scripture. But the Apostle Paul makes it very clear, especially through the whole book of Romans, that the law is there, but you can't do it. You've been trying for years. The nation of Israel tried for years and years and years to follow the law, and they can't do it. The Apostle Paul finally said, that's why God gave us the law, is to help us understand that we can't do it. And it's when we finally get to the end of ourselves and say, God, I can't do it. That's, that's why we need forgiveness. And that's why we need mercy. And we, we need the law to be fulfilled by somebody better than us. So that's where John came to proclaim the law once again. That prepares us for the coming of Jesus. Because you need to know you need a savior. So all these people are saying, I can't. John's telling me to do this. I'm baptizing myself into John's baptism because I want to be forgiven of my sin, but as soon as I come out of John's water, I'm going to sin again, and I'm going to be dirty again, and I'm going to be in trouble again. What will save me from my ongoing sinning? Jesus. Big difference between John and Jesus. 
So John becomes like a life coach. John is trying to tell you how to live. And again, is there anything wrong with that? No, except that we can't do it. Just, just like if you have a personal trainer, why, do, why would you hire someone to tell you what to do? Because maybe that person can motivate me to, I don't know, actually do it. But it still doesn't work, does it? It might get a little better, but ultimately it still doesn't work. John is that ongoing life coach who keeps pushing on us. And, and this is what's interesting. Why was John wildly popular? John, John was going to people and saying, you need to do better. You need to stop sinning. You need to live righteously. Why are you telling me I'm a sinner? Yet, crowds, lots of crowds. What is that? The scripture says in the book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 14, it says, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires anyway, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on our hearts. There is something inside each one of us that knows that there's a right and a wrong and knows that we should probably do the right. Kids get to know this, don't they? Isn't it amazing how quickly one three-year-old can start judging the two-year-old on the basis of some standard of morality that's somehow built into their DNA? My daughter, when she was six, wanted to grow up to be a judge. (laughs) Where did that come from? The law is written there. So when somebody comes along and says, you know, you can do better, there's something inside that you goes, God, you know, I can. I, I ought to. I should. Tell me that again. Do better, and I think you can. Oh, I like that. Now you're, now you're feeding my ego and scratching the law in me. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do better. That's why just miracle diet after miracle diet after miracle diet sells like hotcakes. If, whether it, whether it's, you old folks remember Jack LaLanne or whether it's, uh, I don't know, who's, who's new now? I, who, who, are the, who are the gurus who people will just pay big bucks to just, you tell me what to do. We love that because we think we can. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve thought, okay, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the snake comes along and goes, you know, if you eat that, you'll be better. You'll be able to see things like God does. You'll be able to advance yourself. Yes. Hans and Franz. That's who I was thinking of from Saturday Night Live who will pump you up. We, we, we lean into that. So people were leaning into John the Baptist. It was inspiring for them to try harder and do better. That's part of our human condition. And can I say this? I, I've been a Lutheran now technically for about five years. But I was in the evangelical Christian world for years. And it's, it's saturated with John the baptist type of spirituality, of pastors who stand up week after week and just go, yeah, Jesus saves us, that's great, but here's seven steps to having a better life this week, and you should do better this week, so pray that the Holy Spirit makes you better. Now, ready? On three, break, go! And everyone goes, yeah, and by Tuesday, they failed again, and they feel terrible because I should do better. That kind of spirituality is John the Baptist's spirituality. And it just doesn't take you very far. Jesus comes down, instead of saying, you can do it, Jesus says, I have done it. But God, I should be righteous. I am your righteousness for you. But God, I want to do it myself. But you can't. So I'm here to save you. 
Yes, I can. Okay, you need to repent of your self-promotion, of feeling like you don't need a savior. You have too much pride in your own performance, like you're going to climb your way to heaven. Repent of that and accept the free gift of God, which is your salvation given to you on the cross by sacrifice. So whereas, the, whereas John was wildly popular with people who are going, oh, he's pumping me up. I want to lean into that. I want to get better. Jesus was wildly popular with people who finally said, but God, I can't. But you're saving me anyway. Jesus was the one who instead came and said, come to me, all who are weary, heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, yes, but learn from me because I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart, you'll find rest for your souls, and my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Imagine, if you will, a backpack. Any of you ever do backpacking? A backpack that you put on your back, and it actually makes you feel lighter than when you had it on before. How cool would that be? Oh, I feel pretty good right now, but I put this backpack on, I feel even better. It's like I lost 40 pounds. I do want that backpack. I want it right after the holidays, especially. I want that backpack. That's the yoke of Jesus. Put me on you, and everything lightens up instead of gets harder and heavy. That's the rest. That's, that's who John the, John the Baptist says. He's going, you got to do better. You got to do better. <gasps> Look, it's the Lamb of God who what? takes away the sins of the world. When he saw Jesus, that's how he, what he called him. I'm talking to you about all your sins. Here's the one. He's going to take them away. He's not going to make you better. He's going to forgive you of all of your sins. That's gospel. And that's why John prepared the way. Mysterious, yes, because he's a hero, but he's asking you to do, John asks you to do the best you can do which is an impossible demand. And his baptism of water was a baptism of personal commitment. But what did John the Baptist say about his baptism when people ask? I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with what? Do you know? The Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit? It's God. He's going to baptize you with God. What does that mean? That means God is going to be in you, being your righteousness now forever. John the Baptist couldn't do that. John couldn't save you. John just could lay out what life is supposed to look like so you could look at it and go, I can't do that. Exactly. But the Holy Spirit in you can. And here's where it gets really good. Hopefully you're still tracking here because this is so good. And God, the world needs this so bad. We are so messed up. Again, the law is written on our hearts, so we just we can hardly help ourselves, but it's crept into everything. So this time of year, you better watch out. You, you better not cry. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. That is creepy. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good, for goodness sake, if you want presents. It's John the Baptist. Santa Claus is John the Baptist in a red suit. The whole Christmas carol story, Ebenezer Scrooge, 
who's a bad man, but then he has these visions of these angels and gets this vision of what maybe life should be, and the whole moral of that story is that Ebenezer Scrooge got all better, when in reality he needed to be all forgiven. But we, we, we like it. We, we, we want to be better, so we love those stories. But it creeps into our God theology, too, and we leave church thinking, oh, I just got to be better. I got to be better, right, God? God goes, uh-uh, I am better in you. <laughs> I'm already better. You're done. You're out of the oven. You, you could not be any better than you are because of my righteousness in you. But he, again, here's where it gets good. He saves us, but, okay, he saves us onto this theological balance beam. And here's where I said at the beginning of, beginning of this talk is that how you stay balanced here has everything to do with your spiritual health. Because what can easily happen is you can be saying, God, you've lifted me up out of my sin. And now I'm done. So who gives a rip? I'm forgiven. So I'm just going to sin freely. Sin all the more. I mean, God glorifies himself by forgiving me. I'll give him some stuff to forgive. I'll just do a bunch of stuff, and I'll just not repent anymore. Not enter into a life of ongoing repentance. Instead, I'll just go into a life of license. Like the man in the story where Jesus gave talents to each people, each person, and one person was given talent, and he just buried it. Instead of walking in the fullness of what that salvation was, he just buried it and lived his life. And God came back and said, I gave you this salvation for you to invest your life into good living. I gave you the Holy Spirit not so that you could just squander it on sin. I gave you the Holy Spirit so that you could live holy, so you could live the law like John the Baptist, but you can actually do it now. That's the, that's the backside of the gospel. You're completely saved from your sin. You're clean. You can get no better. And now you can live a good life because you have the Holy Spirit. Before you could do nothing good because you were full of sin and you were an enemy of God. Now you can do good because God in you is your hope of glory. Christ in you. And you can actually follow through by the power of the Holy Spirit and live a life that brings pleasure not only to yourself, but to others, but to God. You've been saved into this world of potential. Back again, you're, you're it's like a snail in your shell under John the Baptist. I can't do what you're asking. Now Jesus comes along and says, I did what he's asking. I lived the perfect life, and now you're saved. I'm done? No, you're started. You've been inaugurated now into this ongoing life until I come back. And now we're in Advent. Jesus, what are you waiting for? I don't know what he's waiting for. It's a mysterious calendar. I wish you'd come back now. Jesus said, I don't even know when that is. Only the Father. Until then, I have this promise. I read it in Isaiah, then I read it in the New Testament, I read it in Revelation. I have this promise of the day when sin is going to be gone. I can't wait. Until then, sin remains... But God is in me, and I don't have to do it. And I can walk in righteousness, or I can sin. We are in play, right? Until, what is it? Doesn't that make you long for the coming of Jesus? 
Lord, please, come now so I don't have to just live in this tension. Because every day, and here's where Martin Luther comes into. He's a, he's a big proponent of this. Every day, we live a spirituality of ongoing repentance, which is why we do this every Sunday, every Saturday here. We confess our sins, and you hear about that forgiveness again. We need to be confessing and forgiving and confessing and forgiving. What is that? That's repentance. That's turning from our sin and walking in righteousness. It is a rhythm of life until Jesus comes again. And we walk in it because we want to be fruitful. Like John the Baptist says, if there's an ax already at the foot of the tree of the unfruitful, and God has given us the Holy Spirit to be fruitful, let's walk in it and be fruitful. And so we bear fruit for the kingdom, which is going to result in, the Bible says, when, when Jesus does return, every good work we've done, every time we've had to suffer for the sake of Christ, it's all going to be encapsulated, and it's going to result in praise, glory, and honor for Jesus. So we, we are a walking investment portfolio in the praise and honor of Jesus. The way we live our life on this balance beam. Should I just go for it and sin because I'm forgiven? I, I don't think that ends well, honestly. Should I just keep working really hard and never relax? Of course not. Be at peace. That's why we say it in church, the peace of the Lord be with you. Peace, that's right. Peace. Now I can do good. Now let's walk in the fullness of good. Now when John the Baptist says, prepare ye the way of the Lord, his second coming is right around the corner. Even so, come Lord Jesus. I, I want to prepare for your coming by taking advantage of this package deal you have called me into. You've forgiven me of my sins, you've filled me with the Holy Spirit, and now I walk and it's all for you. Lord, let me be found ready when you come. That is a mysterious invitation by John the Baptist. Repent. I can't. I can, says Jesus. By the way, I, I got to mention this. Remember when Jesus got baptized by John the Baptist? And you look at him and go, what are you repenting of? You've never sinned. You don't need this baptism of repentance. Why did Jesus get baptized? Jesus is taking all of our sin on himself. And he is dunking all of that sin in that baptism of forgiveness that John the Baptist said. Jesus is saying, along with the entire human race, yes, the law is the way we ought to live. But then Jesus comes out of the baptismal waters. And what happens? you remember? God goes, I like him. This is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit falls on Jesus, which sets the model for all of our baptisms in the future. We too take all of our sins and we go into the waters, but we are baptized in the Holy Spirit like Jesus was when the Holy Spirit fell on him. We're now full of God. We're full of life, full of potential, and we're full of hope as we wait for Jesus to come back. Ah, Christian life. It's fantastic. I just hope tonight that you're not John the Baptist's disciples, that you're not treating your Christian life as this hard thing, this oppressive thing that you're trying really hard, and most of the time you're frustrated. You should be so happy all of the time because of what God has done for you and enjoying walking in the fullness of that life now that you have that joy. 
Heavenly Father, I want to thank you again tonight for this salvation. And thank you, God, for the truth of John the Baptist, who he is and what he means. We do want to live a life full of repentance. Honestly, we look at our lives and we'd like it to be better. We'd like to be more holy. We'd like to be more righteous just moment by moment in the things that we do. But we're thankful, God, that our motivation has changed. We don't need to do that so that you'll be impressed by us or so that we'll earn our salvation. But instead, we get to be like that, God, because it is the life more abundantly that you've promised us. So thank you again, God, for this incredible hope that we have during the Advent season of Jesus coming back and making all things perfectly good. Until then, would you please find us faithful to the call that you have on our life to live well, to live joyfully, to live thankfully, and to lay down our lives for others just like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.